0: First chapter in the first verse. <laughs> he begins to talk about the local body, the church here at Corinth, being empowered by God. Now you've probably read the letter and, and that's hard for you to see that a church with all the wickedness going on in it could be empowered by God and loved by God and cherished by God and secured by God and belonging to God. But that's what we're going to see in the first nine verses. And so here, the local body empowered by God. Chapter 1, 1 through 9, first 9 verses. The local body, in spite of, or maybe because of all of its problems, is empowered by God. God loves him, doesn't He? He's empowered people with all this wickedness going on, this immorality amongst them. He's going to try to lead them out of this, by Paul's epistle, that's true. But at this state of being, they belong to God. All right? In spite of all these things, they're empowered by God. You and I can't get it done by ourselves, can't do it. We've tried and we've died. And if you don't believe that, read Romans 1:18 through 3:20. Because Paul shows there the total failure of man. He tries to live up to what's expected of him, and he dies. And Paul finishes in Romans 3.23, For all of sin comes short of the glory of God. So 3.20, Romans 3.20 says that man can't do anything any good. 3.21 changes the picture. There in Romans because it says, but, B-U-T, and that's the most beautiful word in Romans, is but, because you know there's a change coming. Now, I'm going to turn over there and read that for you, and you can see how important the but is. Romans 3, verse 20 and 21. There it is. But, but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested. Now what had Paul been talking about up until this verse? He'd been talking about the failure of man to, to measure up to the glory of God, to the excellence of God. He's a total failure. He's turned his culture and his society into immorality and idolatry and all sorts of wickedness. So man can't do it. Man cannot empower himself. Did you hear that? you you, the church in Benton City. You cannot empower yourself. Your power comes from God. All right, it makes you lean a little heavier on His Word, doesn't it? Rather than on your expertise and your knowledge and your pedigree from college. All right, so he says, But now the righteousness of God... Without the law is manifested. See, they failed at law, didn't they? All the way through those three chapters. They failed at all. They couldn't keep it. They they turned everything into corruption. But he says the tables changed now, but now the righteousness of God. And before we go any further, I want to make a statement about that. Notice the nature of this righteousness. It's not yours. Has nothing to do with you. It don't. It says, but now the righteousness of who? Look at your text. Don't look at me. It says the righteousness of God. Okay. So here, here's a church at Corinth that's empowered by God, not by a man, not because they sent to Texas and got a high powered, high educated preacher. You can't attribute to anything but the power of God's word. God is the one that empowers. Alright, but now a righteous the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is manifested, being witnessed by the law of the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, there it is again. Whose righteousness is it? It's not yours. Don't you lay claim to it? You have to lay claim to what was read in the first three chapters. You're the one. Humanity is the one. Our brothers and sisters from Adam, and we've contributed to it. We've all contributed to the to the mess down here, and so we're not empowered. We're depowered, if you want, if that's a word. God is the empowerer, and Paul is going to tell the Corinthian church, "You're blessed because you're empowered by God. You're wicked." He got all these problems that he hasn't even mentioned to them yet. He hasn't got into his letter. But he's trying to build them up and show them how important they are. They are empowered by God. And so here's the righteousness that we can attain, and it's God's righteousness. It's not mine and yours. Even the righteousness of God, which is, how is it had? By faith in Christ Jesus. Not had by works. You ain't going to go out here and build you a great edifice of works and say, look at my righteousness. That's what saved me. No, you're going to look at God's righteousness because he gave you a free gift. He gave you something you couldn't attain on your own. Save your life, you couldn't. The man of Romans 7 is a worn out man trying. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me? And so it's by faith this righteousness of God that that empowers us. It's by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe for there is no difference. right. So you can thank God for the but in Romans because it shows you the other side of the ledger. It shows you man's failure and then Right in the middle of chapter 3 it shows you man's success comes only by the empowerment of God. And so Paul speaks to the local body and he declares in many different ways he's going to use many words to describe uh, uh, their empowerment by God. And you can list them because they're in the first nine verses. That's before he goes into the problems that they have. so uh, so Paul begins here in spite of all their problems that they have in spite of all all the points of this division they are empowered by God so you be careful about laying blame to God's church now you can judge it by the word and you can out of love teach it out of its like Paul is going to do here in, in Corinthians. But don't write it off as though it was nothing. Because God empowers uh, congregations that you you would think would, if you was at Corinth you'd think it was sin city. Alright. Now there's nine, nine statements made In these verses, let's read the verses together, and then we'll take a look at them, uh, at these nine statements. All right, beginning, verse 1, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother. Under the church of God which is in Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace be unto you, and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given you by Jesus Christ that in everything you are enriched by Him, in all utterances and in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that ye come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall also confirm you unto the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful by whom ye were called into this fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's as far as one read because that is Paul's presentation of the empowerment by God of the church at Corinth. Now let's analyze it as we look at some of the fantastic things that said here and the nature of the words that declare it. But I like that. It just reads real good. You see, if I'd been looking uh, at how I'd been putting up with this and that, uh, and was I really a true Christian? Totally, all the division, and uh, with all the uh, tolerating all the division, and and uh, the living among all this immorality. I would have loved to hear this about me if I was a member of the Church of Corinth and I heard this reading that we just read, the first nine verses, and I had been tolerating all these problems that they had that we're going to read about, it would really encourage me to know this about me, that I'm empowered by God, and here's how it is. And I would love to hear this written about the person that I've written off and out. Now we all decide that somebody ain't living the way they should. We always look at people, boy, he'll never make it. I'm writing him off in my book. I don't think he'll. I'll see him in heaven. We don't have that right. We don't have a right to judge a brother, and that's John's message in First, Second, and Third John. But here. Uh, What he writes here shows that the person that I've written off is empowered by God with all of his problems. Is God going to just overlook the problems? No! That's why the first Corinthian letter, God's inspired Paul to write this. But he wants to first set them up and show them how precious they are. You're a jewel. You were chosen by God. You were empowered by God. He gave you everything you need. You're not using it. Uh, You've misused it, some of it, and this, that, and the other, but still in all you're empowered by God. And so I'd love to know that, that the guy living with his father's wife in chapter 5 was still all of this. He was sanctified. He was purified, living. With his father's wife. Now you remember the nature, uh, the background to Corinth, don't you? It was a little isthmus between the east and the west, there, Corinth, and all the ships hauling cargo went through there. And consequently, it was a gathering place for all of the nations of the world, people out of all the nations. And also all of the ideas of the nations of the world converged there at Corinth. They had 4,000 priestesses that served in this uh, temple to the goddess Aphrodite, which was the goddess of sex. And maybe you've watched television and you've saw the archaeologists uncover and unmask some of them temples like... uh, uh, down in South America in different places, where they have acts of sex inscribed and and molded into the texture of the wall of the city of the temple. So these are very wicked people, but they've heard the gospel and it's good news to them. They've come out of it. They've been baptized for the remission of sins. But do they have problems? Yes, they do. Does God love them? Yes, he does. Are they in his family? Yes, they are. They're the little baby that lays there and bawls and screams and wants milk and wants his diaper changed and don't know even how to pronounce his own dad's name. But he's very precious to God, and God has empowered him. And Paul wants these people to know that. And if he was one of these Corinthians, seeing all their problems... You'd look and you'd, like, you'd want to hear exactly what Paul saying. So, the man of Romans 5 is living with his father's wife. It's true that he needs to repent or he'll go to hell. But all that being true in his life, he had that background to fall back on. In spite of all that he was, he still had this true in his life. He's a man of God. He needs to repent, but he's a man of God. Is he saved? Well, he's got this sin. Yes, he does. He is. What if he died? He'd go right to heaven. You and I got to see that or that we'll give up somewhere along the line. We'll give up and throw it all away. And we'll say it can't be done. So first, let us talk about Paul called to be an apostle. That statement. To be is not in the Greek text at all, and called is not a verb, but it's a uh, verbal a- uh, uh, adjective. Uh, you'd never know that reading uh, the text, would you? It does help to get a, a little uh, and get a little knowledge of the Greek language in which the New Testament was written in. What he says is, he's talking about what kind of an apostle he is, not how he got to be one. Remember the statement, Paul called to be an apostle. And so the adjective uh, nature of that verb is that he's he's not saying, uh, uh, God called me and said, come over here. It goes much deeper than that. And so he's saying, what he's saying is what kind of an apostle he is and not how he got to be one. He is an elect apostle. That's what the Greek bears out. He's elected by God. Uh, He is a called apostle. He is defining what kind of an apostle he is. Uh... He's saying, in essence, I'm not an apostle based on any decision of man. Man didn't make this decision in his calling. No school gave credence to Paul's apostleship. He didn't have letters from some college or some great edifice. His call of God. The word called modifies apostle, the one sent. And of Jesus Christ through the will of God, at the same time, uh, Paul is saying, "I'm a called apostle, an apostle of Christ, an apostle uh, according to the will of God, and I'm a brother of Sosthenes." That's how he introduces himself. And so Paul says, "I'm I'm elect. I'm." Uh, commissioned, I'm uh, possessed, I'm obedient. Now beginning in verse 2, he says, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, now he's introduced who he is and who the letter's from, him and Sosthenes, his brother, uh, And now he makes a statement. Uh, He's writing to the church of God, which is at Corinth. Now herein is about nine encouraging words. I'll be sure to point them out so you get them, so you can go home and study them. Otherwise, they won't do you quite a good. If you just come up here and listen to me, you might as well go home right now and fold your book. You ain't going to learn nothing. You'll hear words, and you go home, and that's the end of it. How do we learn things? Repetition. repetition, repetition. You want to fix your transmission? How many times you got to read that about the transmission that you're working on to fix it? Over and over and over again. So it's not strange that you have to take what you hear up here and take it home and make it yours. You can't, you can't think for a minute the stupid idea. I just go up and sit and listen. Yeah, it went in here to come out there. I don't have a clue the next day. Okay, so there's nine encouraging words. The first one, the church of God. Here it is with 17 things wrong with it, but it's the church of God. You wouldn't have called it that. If you traveled to Corinth back then and seen that and seen those people's lives, you'd say, No. There's no way this could be the church of God. I'm leaving. I'm looking for the perfect church. They had not lost their identity. They were, with all of these problems, the church of God. What does the word church mean? This, I found, was very interesting. In the Greek... It's ekklesia or however you pronounce it. It simply means to summon forth, to summon to an assembly. Now, whether they are together or not, they are still an assembly. In other words, when they're back home, they're still (laughs) part of the assembly. Like you're a part of the church when you go home, when you leave here tonight. The church will go home. Or the church will gather up here. Uh, but uh, uh, there will be the church assembly even though they are not assembled. And so the word means the called out to assemble. And there's still the called out when they're not assembled. And look at that. Why are we called out? According to that Greek definition, how what are we called? How we uh, what are we called out to do? To assemble. What about these people who decide not to assemble? What about these people who claim to be Christians and never assemble? Well, I ain't going to for the group. I don't even like them. Why I'll stay home. Uh, I'm such a precious thing. I'm not going to commit myself to him. Well, uh, the purpose of the calling is to call to an assembly. Did you get that? It's true that you've been called out of this world. You, but you have been called into an assembly. With God and His children into His family. Do you get that? So you don't have this prerogative. Well, I'm going to want to or don't no, huh? that ain't the nature of calling. A lot of people believe that they don't need to come to services, that they don't get anything out of it. According to them, they don't need to go to the assembly if they're not being edified. Well, I need edified. <coughs> What about me? You're going to write me off? Is that what you going to do? I, be, I, I need that if And I show up and I find that my brothers and sisters don't give a whit about me because they're not here. They could care less about me. I have problems. And I look to them for strength. And they look to me for strength in different areas of life. And you're not willing to share with me? You're not willing to accept this calling of God to an assembly you're assembled together it isn't a matter of your choice and so I need edified why don't you come are you going to be selfish and come only when you are edified when you're edified oh we got a great speaker this Sunday morning coming from Texas and or from whoever, wherever, and boy, howdy, there might be something there to be edified. So, I'm gonna go to that, but I'm not gonna go for the rest of them dead heads. Well, sure, we're all dead heads, and sure, one might have more talents than the other, but we still gather together and we share with one another. It's a sharing with the family of God. And so when we look at the language that Paul used to write to the Corinthians, they understood this. You and I may not, but when you look into the Greek, it's pretty clear. We need to get down to doing what we're called to do. We're called to assemble. That's what we're called to do. (laughs) <laughs> if we never assemble, aren't we operating contrary to our calling? And so that's the first encouraging word, uh, that you are the people that God has called to come together with Him. I don't come up here because you're so I don't come up here because you have some. Oh, just some unbelievable attraction that draws me. I come up here because you're a child of God. And I have an obligation to smile at you, to greet you as a human being, to offer any help that I may be able to offer you and you the same to me. We don't see that. We don't see that we edify one another when we come together and sing. But Paul said in Ephesians 5:19 and in Colossians 3:16, when we sing, we're to sing and teach one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in our heart to the Lord. So, what are we doing when we sing? We're teaching one another. If somebody come in from the neighborhood over here to look at us and see if they wanted to be a part of us and see if we had anything to offer in their sick little lives. And they sat down next to you and heard you sing. Could they tell that you really believed what you sung by the way you sang it? Well, anyway, just a question. And so that's the first encouragement word. That you're the people that God has called to come together with him. Now he is there whether you come or not. God is. He's there in the congregation whether you come or not. I suggest you come to see if he's there and since he's, his people are there. Now I've found that normally I get out of something what I put into it. I cannot expect to get anything out of a bank account that I put nothing into it, and so you've got to put yourself into the church, the calls. Or you're not going to get anything out of it, like a bank account. You got to put something in there to have something to get out, don't you? Now these Corinthians probably have some inferiority feelings. I'm sure they did. And so he wants them to know the fact that you are the called out people to assemble that belong to God. You are the church of God. Not the church of Paul. Not the church of Cephas. Not the church of Apollos. Because they're divided up over this. Then he'll deal with that beginning in verse 10. But right now he's trying to show them that uh, well, he's he's already getting at the problem of division, isn't he? Because we don't come together for one another. We come together because God is here and his children are here. And John says, if you don't love his children, you don't love God. Oh, but Lord, he dresses funny. He looks funny. He acts funny. He's different. I don't like him. You don't have that property. There's a soul there that God died for. And you have an obligation to Him. That's why we're called out to an assembly. We're not just called out. We're called out for purposes. One of them is called out of the world to serve God. And in serving God, we're called out to an assembly. We're called out to a separation. There's many ways you could preach on it or describe it. But just being called out you can't say, well, I've been called out of sin. I was baptized, so what the hell? I don't need to go to church anymore. I don't even like them people. You don't have that right. You don't understand what you was called into. You're in a family. God's father, in case you had missed it. Uh, so Paul here is already, we haven't got hardly two verses into the text three verses till he's he's already dealing with this problem of division that he'll really get into in verse ten. Alright the second thing he says is in an encouraging way to these people uh, and put yourself there at Corinth. You're a member of the church at Corinth. Alright? The second thing he says in an encouraging way is you are sanctified. You're not only called out to the assembly, but you're sanctified. He didn't say you will be sanctified. Now, mark that down. He said you are sanctified. You mean these people, man living with his father and wife and all this problem going on, and they're sanctified? Yeah, right now, at the same time. It isn't a, a, a thing in the future. He didn't say you will be, he said you are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Now this word sanctified simply means that which may approach <coughs> deity. I'm not even going to try to pronounce that word in the Greek. But etymologically, that was the people who could come into the presence of deity. deity only those who were sanctified. That's the original meaning of the word. And therefore it comes to mean consecrated or holy. And by usage it simply means to set apart. Now notice the use of this idea. Romans 6, 17 and 18 and Colossians 1, 13. Let's go there and read them. Romans 6, 17 and 18. But God be thanked that you were, you notice the past tense there? You were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed. Now here's the present tense. From the heart, that form of doctrine which has delivered you. Notice that what they obeyed. They didn't obey just whatever they wanted to. They obeyed that form of doctrine. <clears throat> What's that form of doctrine? That's the one that Jude said that you must earnestly contend for. The faith. And that's the one Paul talked about in Ephesians 4, 4 through 6 of the oneness of religion. One doctrine. One faith. Alright? So Paul praises him. He says, God, God be thanked that you were the servants of sin but that you've obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you, and being then made free from sin. When was they made free from sin? When they obeyed that form of doctrine. Somebody says, what are you going to do believe? There's a little bit more to it than that, isn't there? So when they had obeyed that form of doctrine which was delivered unto them, being then made free from sin... Again, when was they made free from sin? When they obeyed that form of doctrine that was taught by the apostles because they were chosen by the Lord, because they were empowered by the Lord. And their empowerment uh, distills in the church because of their word. Being then made free from sin, you became servants of righteousness. And so there's the use of that word, sanctify now Look at Colossians 1:13 <coughs> Who has delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom Oh here's dear son There's that setting apart There's that sanctification. There's that word being used in reality of how that they were servants in darkness, but now have been translated into the kingdom of His dear Son. There's a metamorphosis took place. There's a change took place. They stepped across a fence, a boundary. They was on this side, and now they're on that side. They were set apart, sanctified. All right, let's go back to the Corinthian letter. <laughs> so the original thought was whatever or whoever is sanctified has a right to be in the presence of God. Now that's encouraging when you got 17 things wrong with you like they did it's encouraging to know that you're sanctified. With 17 problems, and I'm hearing this letter from Paul that's actually from the pen of God. God, this is God, breathe. And I'm hearing God tell uh, me that I'm along with everybody else, the man living with his father's wife and all of the other problems that people have in that congregation and we're together, we're sanctified. I need to hear that. Before my butt gets chewed on, and it's going to get chewed on <clears throat> for 16 chapters in First Corinthians, I'll guarantee you. God's going to... Uh, what's Hebrews uh, 12 say? Whom the Lord loves, He does what? He chastens and scourges every son that He receives. They're fixing to get the chastening and the scourging of their life. But what have they got to know before they get their butt chewed? they got to know who they are. God's telling them here, listen, you're the church of God. You're my church. You're my calling. And I've called you into an assembly together of saints. Uh, and you're the caller, whether you're uh, at the church building, if you want to put it in that term, Or at home, you're still the call of God to assemble. Uh, So it would be encouraging uh, knowing these 17 things wrong with you and the fact that you're sanctified. But you still have a right to be in the presence of God, even though you've got these 17 problems. You have a right to be in the presence of God tolerating the fellow living with his father's wife, mixed up with their marriages, still committing a little bit of fornication, going to law with one another, mixed, upon, uh, uh, mis, uh, mixed up upon the resurrection, not eating the supper properly, and bragging about what gifts they've got, they still have a right to be in, in the presence of God. And that's what Paul's telling them. That's what you need to see in that. Paul said they were sanctified. Yeah, but Paul, my goodness, you're smarter than that. they got 17 problems. They're still sanctified. They're set apart unto God. So be careful about judging a brother. I'm talking about a brother that's not in rebellion. I'm talking about a brother that's wrapped up in sin and is trying to dig his allow God to lead him out of it. All right, but even with all and 17 things wrong, they understand now that they have from this letter that they have they're sanctified before God, they can stand in the presence of God. That's what the word means tolerating the fellow living with his father's wife and the mixed marriages and all the other things that was there. All right, they still have a right to be in the presence of God. Now, that's not our view normally in religion. Now, does that uh, excuse any of the things that I just mentioned that they had wrong with them? No, it don't. It don't excuse a one of them. But this God still thinks that that these people can still come into the presence of God. They can still come into God's presence. The man living with his father and wife. He's sitting right back there. Did you see him? Well. Thirdly, then he says in the text, That they are called. That's not a verb either. That's an adjective. Just like up here where it says Paul was called to be an apostle. To be is not in the text, in the Greek text. Sometimes the translators put these in the text to make sense. But in this case, they don't make sense. He's telling us, again, we're holy. But he's telling us what kind of holy person we are. We are elect holy persons. It isn't something we done. We don't become holy by what we did. We become holy by who elected us. Who elected us? God did. He made us holy. You see how we're justified by His righteousness, not by what we do? If you don't see that, you're going to be frustrated the rest of your life. And you probably give up on Christianity. But if you can ever come to see what Paul's pointing at here, uh, he's got you dedicated to him for life because of the freeness of the gift. God didn't ask anything from you. He loved you. And he wanted to adopt you from this orphanage. All he asks you to do is come get in the car. Somebody says, well, if you're baptized, it's like getting in the car, you know. You're going to do something, and you're working and earning it hogwash. You're merely laying hold on eternal salvation that he offers. Uh, And so, we we don't uh, become holy by what we did we become holy by who elected us. God did. He elected us to this holiness. By uh, by what happened to us. You see, if you say call to be holy, you're going to make the holiness yours, and maybe even the calling yours. Yeah. Look at me. I call myself. Uh, I'm the elect, and uh, I'm sanctified. And I did all this on my own. That's self-righteousness. But if you are called holy and you are uh, dedicated, elected a holy one, that puts credit on the elective one. Alright, so if you're holy and elected, that puts the calling and everything on who? On the elective one, the one that elected you, which is God. And so we've already seen in several instances that it's God's righteousness, not yours. And the word called is the Greek word equity, which means to choose out of a group. Do you feel that important? Do you feel that God has chosen you out of a group? The group, the world. He's chosen you. Well, there's qualities that caused him to to choose you. He wants to choose everybody. But the only ones he can choose is those that are humble. 1 Peter 5, verse 6. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and he will exalt you in due time. (coughs) (coughs) But here Paul tells the Corinthians... Uh, in this word called that they are chosen out of a group man that'd be something to live in New York City with all the crime and incest and all that goes on because it's a, a city where all the philosophies of the world converge because the people of the world converge there they pass through there all the time They don't pass through Benton City, but they do there. (laughs) See, if you say called to be holy, you're going to make the holiness yours and maybe even the calling yours. But if you are called holy, if you are elected a holy one, like Paul's telling the Corinthians they are, that puts the credit... Not on you and your goodness, but on the elective one, the one that elected you. So thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. And the word, uh, let's see. The fourth thing that he says about these people is, uh, in these first nine verses, is that they have, they have, is they receive Grace. He wants them to have more, and in verse 3, but he says they have received grace in verse 4. And so they are the recipients of God's great gift. That's what grace is, isn't it? It's God's gift. Whether it be salvation, or sanctification, or joy, or peace, or any other gift, it's a gift of God. Uh, now, grace doesn't simply mean saved; it means much more than that. If you talk, if you take the word grace in the Bible, you find out that you even sing by grace, you serve by grace, you stand by grace, you you're sustained by grace. You find grace to be sufficient, don't you? Now, do you think that would preach Brother Paul or Brother uh, Darren? <laughs> it would. The nature of grace. It's a standing, it's a serving, it's a It's a saving. It's a, uh, all of them things that I just mentioned. You can go through the Bible and look at the word grace and you can find out what all it gives. <laughs> You can preach a pretty powerful sermon on that. I never have, but you could, couldn't you? Now he says, grace and peace unto you in the text. Now they've already got it, though. Uh, People can have more of what they've already got, can't they? More and more. And that's what Paul says. Uh, Do we possess the kingdom now? Yeah, we do. But are we passing... Uh, possessing the kingdom daily yeah Hebrews 12 verse 28 wherefore receiving a kingdom it cannot be moved cannot be shaken so he uses a present participle here having received do we have it or don't we have it yeah we have it that's why you can have the spirit and yet have the admonition to be filled with the spirit did you get that You can have the Spirit and yet be admonished to be filled with the Spirit more and more and more. More about Jesus' Word. More of His (laughs) Savior. So the idea of grace here is that we receive all of God's bestowals Upon us. Everything God has, we get. That's the idea. We're empowered by God. Corinth was empowered by God with 17 serious problems. And so that's a comforting word, that word grace. Because it says, all that God has, I get. And so I sing by grace, I serve by grace, I'm saved by grace, on and on. He says in verse 3, grace and peace to you. And there's a wish. In verse 4 he says, but I thank God for His grace given you in Christ Jesus. Uh, They've been given grace, but He wants them to have more and more, you see. So God resists the proud, Scripture says, but He gives more grace to the humble. And that's James 4, and verse 6. He giveth more grace. In the Greek it reads an even greater grace. And so more grace is even an even greater grace than you've received. But they, Paul lets them know that they're recipients of all that God has. He's a father and he's opened his household to them. He's opened his cabinets to him. He's opened his closets to him. How else could we describe it? He's opened his everything to him. Now, if you heard these first nine verses, wouldn't you be prepared to take on a little criticism? And seeing how much God loved you, wouldn't you be uh, uh, able and ready to take the the uh, chastisement and that's what Hebrews 12 said whom the Lord loves he chastens and scourges every son that he receives and you can see how God loved the Corinthians but he wanted them to see how precious they was before he whooped them spanked them and brought them to repentance Uh. And so there's a greater grace to get than the one you've got. Now, wouldn't that be a comforting word to a a brow-beaten church called Corinth? It sure would. They're beating beating each other and they're beating themselves. That's evident in, in the book itself. The fifth idea is in verse 5 they're enriched in every way God wants them to know that With all of their problems they're enriched in every way he's talking about what the church was it's empowered by God it's owned by him it's sanctified by him it's called by him uh, grace given to it by him it's enriched in every way. And so he's telling this church, they're wealthy in every way. They have a wealth of speaking and a wealth of knowledge. The word speaking is a very interesting word. It's the word Jesus was called in John 1 1. In the beginning was the word. And it's not only a mode of discourse. But it's a style of speaking. And so this is a good translation of it. You are enriched in all speaking. And so all the speaking you've got to do, you've got the riches of God given to you to do it. You believe Benton City's got that? Corinth had it. Benton City's got it too. I hope you're making a parallel here between Corinth and Benton City. We're not near as ugly as they, as we'll see them be. But we have the same things they have. And so, uh, you've been given the riches of God, given to you. The church, uh, that's uh, the fact that the church does. Uh, I don't think you could write that any uh, one man, but you can write that at, to a congregation. That the congregation at Corinth lacked no ability to speak. Do we lack any ability to speak? No. Why don't we speak? We have no gratitude to God. Well, he hadn't hurt me, you know. We don't see, and I'm working on my salvation. I'm going to be a perfect one day. We don't see the gratitude there. We don't see the need. They lack no need, is what Paul's telling them. They lack no message to speak. Uh, they did not need to uh, no additional speaking. They had all the speaking that they needed. Not only that, they were, in verse five, enriched in knowledge. Now that's a Greek word, kenosis which normally means knowledge of a special kind. And so they not only had the ability to speak, but they had all the word that they needed. They not only had all the speaking they needed, they had all the revelation they needed. This church needs to be reminded of what it knows, but it knows all it needs to know. One of us true about Ben City. I don't know about you, but I'm not doing all that I know. Are you? Can you say that? I know a whole lot more than I'm doing. I'm not living up to what I know. And that's the problem here at Corinth. They don't need more knowledge or revelation. Now, why can't uh, can I say that? When you go to First Corinthians 13... They're not going to need what he says here. They've already got it. And that is more knowledge, more word. That's what they want, but they don't need it. And so they've got all the word that they need and all the word to speak it. They know all about God. They need to know. Their problem is there's no love, and they don't like one another. If there's anything that will divide the church, it's no love. You don't like one another. And you begin to hedge off from one another and build fences with words and statements and phrases and insinuations and inferences. And all sorts of ways you begin to separate and divide. Well, we'll find out that they had that problem later when we get into the problems. Uh, and so verse 7, he says, Therefore, you do not lack in any spiritual gift. So because you've got all you need to speak and all you need to know, uh, as your earthly weight for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. And so, as we earnestly wait for the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have all we need. We're not ill-equipped. Now, all of this would be encouraging, but I know I need something uh, because I've got this terrible feeling that I'm not totally what I ought to be with God. And so what is it I need? Hang on and he'll tell us. First of all, he encourages them with what they've got before he tells them what they need. Isn't that what you do? Don't you take a boy in the bedroom when you've got to chastise him, one of your children? You tell him what he's got before you tell him what he needs. Before you can bring him to repentance and change in his life, he's got to see who he is, how valuable he is, how precious he is, how he's blessed. And that's just exactly what Paul's doing. Or what God's doing through Paul. All right, the sixth thing. We said there were nine things here of encouragement to this church. Here's the sixth one. The sixth thing he says about them Uh, Starting back up in verse 6, is that they are uh, confirmation of the testimony. Confirmation of the testimony. Miracles confirm the testimony, and so does the church. The church is a confirmation of Paul's testimony. He says, My testimony about Jesus was confirmed in you. In other words, you are the confirmation of my testimony. In 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 1, Paul calls them his epistle that's known and read of all men. And so Paul is saying, You are my open letter. What I say about Jesus... You are a confirmation of it. I say Jesus is able to take. uh, uh, Is able. uh, Jesus is able to take uh, nothing's and make them somethings. That's His power. I say Jesus is able to take weakness and make them strong. I say Jesus is able to take uh, legalists and make them loving, grace believers. And the Corinthians proved all of that because Paul brought them to Jesus and he did it. And so they are a confirmation of what Paul testifies about Jesus. Do you have men and women out here as confirmation of what you've said about Jesus? The seventh thing. We're about there, we got it. Two more. Ago. The seventh thing he says about these people is that they're going to be kept strong. Well, I need to know that. They're not only are they strong, but kept strong. Now, the interesting thing about this is that is that uh, the phrase in verse eight, "He will keep you uh, strong" or "confirm you, confirm you." is the same as the phrase that they are a confirmation of the testimony. It's the same word. It means to render constant and unwavering uh, that's the word uh, confirm. It doesn't mean to stamp approval on. It means that you make the testimony about Jesus permanent. It is not permanent uh, if it's uh, it is not permanent to the kingdom. You are what makes the gospel of Christ constant and unwavering. Now that's remarkable about this church that has so much wrong with it. This church at Corinth (coughs) made the testimony about Jesus constant and unwavering. And God will keep them that way. And so it's encouraging to know that I give the gospel stability. But even more encouraging is that God keeps me stable right up to the end. And that's what Paul wanted the Corinthians to know. God will see you to the day of Christ. He's running interference in your life. He won't allow you to be tempted above that you're able to bear. He gives you His strength that's able to uh, overcome the enemy. He gives you the shield, which is the faith of His Word, which is in Ephesians 6, 10-18, is able to quench every fiery dart of the devil. Now there's people in the congregation that need some repentance, but the church, the pure, uh, it's pure by the blood of Christ. And so we need to be very critical of the local body. If somebody has a problem, go talk to them privately. The church doesn't need to have one of these problems that they have here. So the church is kept pure by the blood of Christ and kept strong by the power of God in spite of all of these 17 things uh, bad that's wrong with them in this church. And they're going to be kept strong to the very end. That's what Paul told them. Now, Paul is going to talk about these 17 things wrong, but before he does, he wants them to know who they are and whose they are. The eighth thing that he says about this church, in verse 8, is you will be blameless. In other words, it's going to keep you strong until the end. And so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word kept strong is the same word, confirmation. It means to be constant and unwavering. And so we make the gospel constant and unwavering. And God keeps us constant and unwavering right to the end. Now that doesn't mean uh, sinless. It just means we're hanging in there. We keep, we keep in there. We know we got problems, and we take them to God, and He teaches us to overcome them and helps us along the way, gives us grace along the way. So the rock beneath me will not crumble. I may shake sometimes a little bit, but the rock under me will not crumble. I'm standing on an un destructible rock I built my house on a rock not on the shifting sands of life and on that rock I may become unstable sometimes but I'm still standing on that rock and here was a church that had 17 unstable things about it but standing on the rock and so I'm standing on an unwavering rock so that I'm unwavering. That gives me the motivation to, to life. It gives me the, uh, the incentive to go forward, to press on, to move on. You want to know why the world commits suicide? There it is, right there. They have no incentive. They have no motive that lasts, that presses them on. The Corinthians needed a base to be able to handle one thing that they're the, the the one thing that are the things that are wrong. So Paul here gives them the basis to handle anything he's going to say. Because he gives them biblical uh, image. I want that better than self-image. He gives them him image. Self-image will let you know but him, image doesn't. He is my righteousness, and he tells—he's telling me what I am. I don't care what's wrong with me. Here's what I am. That's what Paul's telling the church there in the first nine verses. Therefore, I'll correct what's wrong with me, won't I? And so Paul is uh, laying uh, the proper understanding in four chapters to take care of the rest of the book which is going to get meaner than a snake as he talks about these problems. Number eight is is uh, blameless. Irreproachable. Who can lay anything against God's elect? It's God that justifies. Romans 8, you need to understand that, that your sins doesn't separate you from God if your progress is in the light. I'll read that again, but it comes from 1 John 1, 7. If we walk in the light, it sees in light we have fellowship one with another. You with God. And the blood of His Son keeps you clean. And so, your sins doesn't separate you from God if your progress is in the light. If you're making progress. So you're living with your father's wife. You're making progress in the light, aren't you? You want to walk in the light. And as soon as Paul shows this fellow, he's going to repent. 2 Corinthians shows that. Anyway. Now, if your progress is in darkness, all your righteousness makes you no better. That's the two-sidedness of the coin isn't it that's the truth 1 John 1 verse 5 through 2 and verse 5 now the ninth word he says God called me into the fellowship with his son Jesus Christ our Lord now the word is fellowship with Christ not with you Now, I'm with you, but I'm not in this verse. You've been called into fellowship, not with one another. You don't come to the assembly to have fellowship with one another. Now, you do, because you're both in Christ. But why do you come to the assembly? Yeah, your fellowship is with this, this fellow up here. All right, the fellowship here is not horizontal, it's vertical it's like First John 1 verse 6 through 9 that we've discussed many times fellowship means participation and participate with Jesus I participate with Jesus uh, it's a good word if you take it outside the Lord's uh, supper context it is communion with, which means joint union co-union we are commonly united Now, the beautiful thing is, if I've got fellowship with Jesus, and you have fellowship with Jesus, then naturally we have fellowship horizontally with one another. But where did the fellowship begin? Between you and God. He's the one that called you. He's the one that sanctified you and justified you. He's the one that gave you the grace. He's the one who gave you your righteousness. His righteousness. Excuse me, I should say his righteousness. But the horizontal fellowship is only possible because it's first vertical. And so here is nine thoughts presented here that they belong to God. They are the church of God. That they can approach God since they are sanctified. That they... uh, they've been elected by God called to be holy that they have been gifted by God grace has been given to them that they are enriched in all they need by God that they are confirming what God has to say about Jesus uh, and that way they will be confirmed by God himself that nobody can say anything against them in a uh covenant uh, condition court. Nobody can charge them with sin. And they have joint participation in all that Jesus does. Wouldn't you be encouraged to be told that if you was a Corinthian? Yeah. What we just read and looked at here in the last hour. Then tell it to the people you talk to. Every now and then we need to remind, uh, remember and remind, uh, be reminded who we are. And Paul just reminded us who we really are. We're called of God, with the church of God, with the sanctified, with the justified. We have God's righteousness. We have his peace. We know that he'll see us to the very end. Now I can handle anything uh, knowing these facts. I can handle anything. Life doesn't have anything to throw at me that would deter me. And that's Romans 8, isn't it? Verse 31. Since God is for us, who are what can be against us? Is God for the Corinthians? Oh, yeah. Were they elected? Yeah. You mean God chose you? Yes, He did. He chose uh, Cornelius, didn't He? And he sent a man after him. Sent Philip or Peter. And uh, how about the Ethiopian unit? Was he chosen by God? And while, what was the quality about these men or these people that made them the elect of God? Humility. The word humility. And that reverts back to 1 Peter 5, verse 6. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. And after, verse 11, And after you've struggled a while, he establish, strengthened, <laughs> and settled you. But there's profit in the struggle. All right, so next week, we'll go in the second point that Paul makes is that the local body is imperiled by division. Now he starts, I want you to notice, with the worst thing that could happen to a congregation in division. Now we've just about seen it. We've seen it partly here at Benton City. And we've been holding our breath that we never do see it totally. But God help us when we are so naive and so uh, uh, insensitive when we have what Paul told the Christians they had all knowledge and all ability God help us when we allow that to happen this division and this separation <coughs> and this ugly human pride says i'm a paul Well, I'm of Apollos. I follow Cephas. I follow Christ. And Paul's going to go into that argument. He's going to show them that in Christ there is no division. We're all one. (laughs) Anyway, thank you. Thank you. What is today? 21st. 21st.